Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, I'm Jordan Rowling, host and producer of Billboard News. And I'm Gail Mitchell, Billboard's executive director of RB and Hip Hop. And this is In The Lead, a Billboard and Honda Stage podcast series where we talk to some of music's most influential female changemakers. In each episode, our guests will discuss their path to success, the obstacles they overcame along the way, and how they continue to pay it forward. Today, we're excited to sit down with Dana Frank, the president and CEO of First Avenue, one of the longest running independently owned and operated venues in the U.S. If you don't already know, First Avenue has served as the launching pad for countless bands and artists, including most recently, Lizzo. Dana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for inviting me. What a thrill to be here with you guys. I'm beyond honored. Well, obviously, we've been doing our homework on you, and we have such a great conversation ahead, but we always like to start off by asking, how are you? You know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. How are you feeling, Dana? You know, like, we always have to qualify that answer with, like, in terms of COVID, I'm doing great. You know, my kids are healthy, um, still like, you know, healthy and staying optimistic, you know, compared to a year ago, you know, off the scale is terrible, but you know, every, everything considering doing great. How about you guys? I like the positive outlook. I mean, I'm doing great. Absolutely. Um, same as what you said, like health wise, I'm great. My family is great. And that's all you can really ask for these days. Gail? How are you doing, girl? We got to ask you too. I'm hanging just like the, the the two of you. It's, you know, out here in LA, it's, you know, a, a second lockdown is, is looming and people still aren't listening, but no, I'm blessed. My kids are fine. I'm fine. And we're all here and we're going to make it through this and uh, get on the other side, all of us into 2021. Absolutely. Obviously, you know, in this time, I think a lot of us can say that we find comfort in listening to music, right? And that's what we're talking about, really. So Dana, can you kind of talk about what music you're listening to? What's leaving you feeling optimistic or energized or inspired these days? Yeah, it's funny. I have multiple playlists, right? I have my like, good news playlist and my want to smash the world to pieces playlist (laughs) Um, and my I want to introduce my kids to good music playlist so you know um, I've been listening to a lot of uh, lately Big Thief and a lot of the new Fiona Apple record I just like like blew my mind at the beginning of quarantine Um, and just Chance the Rapper is probably my like on all, all of my playlists, I would say. Do you mind my asking how old are your kids? They're six and eight. What are they listening to? What are you sharing with them at this point? Mine are 25 and, and 26, so they help me a lot on the R&B hip-hop side. 
Yeah, they really, it's like EDM and hip hop, even as, as young as they are. Um, but I've been trying to like do the classics, kind of like a, you know, David Bowie and Queen and Rolling Stones and uh, Michael God, is Michael Jackson classic now, I guess. Um. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny, Gail, that you asked that question, though, because my niece is 10 years old, and she's obsessed with Post Malone. And I I think it's the most random (laughs) pairing, but she is so into Post Malone. These kids, I think, yeah, more well-versed than than I certainly was, you know, coming up. My mom, uh, like you said, Dana, was a big help to me. She introduced me to Earth, Wind & Fire and Stevie Wonder growing up, so... You know, it's it's nice to have that common bond. It really music is a universal language. It really is. Absolutely, same here. Princes, the Elton Johns, the, mm-hmm. even the rock bands. My mom is such a Def Leppard fan, so I'm like all over the place. We were driving to school one day, and you know, we were in the middle of conversation, and my my littlest son parked up. He goes, oh, "This is Prince," and it was that moment when I was like, "Oh, I'm doing something right. Okay, <laughs> they're, they're gonna be okay. If they can recognize Prince on the radio at five years old, I feel like." We're okay. Right. So Dana, tell us your story. Uh, where are you from and where did your love of music come from? I'm from Minneapolis. Um, I, you know, grew up, born and raised probably, you know, 10 blocks from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, my love of music definitely came from my parents, right? Just like we're hoping to instill in our kids. Um, and my parents were, you know, extreme live entertainment lovers, especially. So we grew up going to concerts, you know, uh, Madonna and Michael Jackson at the arena shows to like some of the smaller shows. The first concert I can remember going to is David Bowie at the, um, at the Met Center in Minneapolis, I think, or the Civic Center, sorry. Um, and so we would go to events all the time and there was always music playing in my house. That's a good one. You said David Bowie was your first concert? The first one I remember, right? So it was, I think, the Let's Dance Tour in 85. Just it was just a part of our culture growing up and in our house, you know, to to get out of the house and go and do and see and be in the world. Yeah. I mean, obviously now, Dana, you're the president and CEO of First Avenue and your dad actually worked there. Right. And then eventually ran it. It was founded by a man named Alan Fingerhut, who was the heir to the Fingerhut catalog fortune, um, who came into a lot of money at 25 years old and saw an abandoned Greyhound bus depot in downtown Minneapolis and thought it would make a great rock club and was like a real visionary and um, had the resources to do it. And, um, you know, the entire city is incredibly grateful. And so Alan owned it and operated it up until about 2004 when it fell into bankruptcy. And my dad was Alan's best friend from elementary school. I mean, they grew up together all the way from, you know, kindergarten through college and, and beyond. So when it, my dad went to University of Minnesota, got his accounting degree, and kind of helped with the general ledger and, and kind of overseeing the operations from a financial perspective. And it, it fell into bankruptcy. And um, my dad and Alan had a big falling out. So my dad bought it out of bankruptcy and took over the operations in 2004 or five. And then when he had a stroke, in 2009, that's when I became involved. So I was living in Los Angeles. I worked at Paramount Studios and VH1, you know, wanting to be a film producer. And when he got sick, I flew home and tried to figure out like where the bodies were buried and what we were going to do if he didn't recover. And just instantly 
you know, the first time I stepped back in the club, I, I just fell in love with it and kind of vowed to protect it and do what I could to make sure it remained strong and a community stalwart and uh, independent. And that's kind of been my driving force for the last decade. What does it feel like to be following in your dad's footsteps? And, and not really on purpose, right? But you're, you're, sorting, you're sort of carrying on his legacy by accident, it seems. Yeah, I mean, accidentally and intentionally. I mean, I can't believe how lucky I am. You know, family businesses are hard. They're just like every part of them are hard between, you know, trying to maintain a separate personal relationship and business relationship and differing ideas between generations. And, um, but at the same time, like how lucky I am to get this time and the lessons that I've learned, you know, everything, everything he taught me coming into play in the last eight months, right? Like, you know, from like, relationships to uh, finances to operations you know it's one thing when times are good and you can be like oh okay you know maybe that's helpful but maybe not I don't get it and then all of a sudden things turn you're like oh that's why this that's why this is important and that's why you maintain your relationships and that's you know um so it's it's been just I can't believe how incredibly fortunate I am. You mentioned you were in film and TV, but before we move over to that side of your, your career, uh, Dana, wanted to know, you mentioned earlier about David Bowie, seeing him and, and other folks. Um, who was the most memorable in the shows you've gone to um, growing up? And particularly at First Avenue. Like, what shows did you grow up seeing at First Avenue specifically? What a big question. I was a grunge kid. I was a riot girl. I you know, would sneak out of the house and I had purple hair and big combat boots. And, wow. and you know, where I would sneak out to is I'd go to shows, you know, and I'd try to like cover up and duck around the people I knew at the club so that they <laughs> couldn't see me. That is so epic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like I'm all like, sometimes the family, you know, having a rock club is your family business is good. And, but when you're, you know, 14, it's, it's not the best thing in the world. <laughs> um, but so, you know, I went like, Smashing Pumpkins and Liz Fair and Hole and I never got to see Nirvana. That was that was oh. a Babes in Toyland and L Seven and oh my god, I never yeah I never got to see the replacements the first time around. I discovered them a little. Uh, I was too young to go to shows um, or Husker Du. I never got to see them. If, if you had the pick though, um, who would you say were the top three performances that you have ever seen at First Avenue? Prince and Prince and Prince. No, I'm so <laughs> jealous. I'm like dying. Over I was going to ask if he was on your list, if you got that oh, chance. Oh, yes. Once. He played 7707. Oh, that, man. And I mean, I probably saw him 50 times in other locations, but, you know, once okay. at first half. I'm like, okay, let's not let's not brag, okay? Because I've seen him zero, so. Oh, uh, no. Oh, no. I'm I know. I'm so sorry. I know. I got I got the chance to, to chat with him in 2013. Actually, flew out to uh, Paisley Park and interviewed him there. And he promised that night that he was with Third Eye Girl at that point. This was 2013, as I said. And. He said, we're going to be doing some shows, tryout shows or, or rehearsal shows rather at First Avenue. If I call you, would you come? So I was fiending, but I never got that call. So I am just jealous of you that you got to see him there at First Avenue. That's so tremendous. <laughs> I remember those calls from Paisley, you know, putting, you know, putting the dates on hold and then they would cancel and, you know, then we would clear our calendar and, but you know, whatever, anytime he called, it was just like, yes, yes, whatever you want. <laughs> um, I, I remember the first time I saw Lizzo, that was 
a revelation, um, you know, performing in a, a three piece girl band and just being like, wow, this is, you know, that that's, I think the life of a club owner, a club worker is seeing that person for the first time and just knowing you're like, oh, that's, that's a star without a doubt right. that that's just the, the most unreal talent. So we can credit you kind of with discovering Lizzo. Yeah. I would definitely hesitate to say that. No, <laughs> not in any realm. Lizzo discovered Lizzo discovered Lizzo and gets all of the credit. I love that. <laughs> but she, she lived in Minneapolis and she kind of explored and developed her sound here and was playing shows. You know, we did her record releases and, um, and, her like I said like her groups and her solo and her first main room show I mean just you know obviously you see that talent and you're just like whatever we can do to help you explore that and develop that we want to do it before we continue on it's time for a quick word from our sponsor Honda Stage Honda Stage is where Honda's passion for music comes to life and where the industry's most exciting rising stars share their talent and stories of imagination and determination with the world. Head to billboard.com slash Honda Stage to check out more exciting content, including exclusive performances from music's hottest rising stars and new episodes of the In The Lead podcast. You talked about you you were in LA and you were working in t- TV and film and you specifically mentioned VH1 as well. How did that happen? How did you end up in LA? I went to film school for a year to be a producer. And so I, it seemed like it was right after around post-September 11th and the weather seemed nice. And I went to visit and there were palm trees and it was pretty, a a very quick snap decision. Um, But, you know, I met my wife there and made lots of good friends and never, ever did I imagine coming home to Minneapolis or moving back. That was, (laughs) you know, you kind of leave at 18 and you're like, see ya. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way, except, you know, the weather wasn't what brought me to New York, obviously. I'm from Utah, so I went from cold to cold. So it doesn't really work out that way. But I, I, when you say film, like you were you went to film school to be a producer. Why was that your first career calling? And then how did you transition from that into being back into the live music industry? So I always I loved film and TV and I but I wasn't a creative, you know, I'm not like the the artist or the, the musical type. Um, and so I really gravitated towards producing and I see it as really similar to what I do right now, actually, where, you know, as a venue owner and a promoter, it's, it's not your vision, right? It's the artist's vision, but much like a producer, our job is to execute their vision and to make sure they have all of the resources and all of the capabilities to perform and to have the best possible experience so that the fan in turn can have the best possible experience. And that was, that's really similar to like producing or, you know, being a network exec is you need to make sure that your executive, your creatives have everything that they need in order to make the best possible product so that you have the best, you know, film and TV show for the customer. And so it, it, it does, it's not a direct correlation, but um, in terms of like, ethos, I I find it really similar to what I'm doing right now. I see the similarity. Absolutely. Would you say there was anything challenging about making that pivot from one industry to the other? I think the most challenging was definitely re-entering the family dynamic as a 20-something, you know, who who left home at 18. and, um, And so to, like I said, family businesses are hard, the most rewarding and but for the most challenge for sure. And so for me, return, like going from film to music was, is very, very 
entwined with going back into that family relationship also. Yes, you've obviously settled into your role there. You're doing some great things, which we're going to get into deeper. But how how steep was the learning curve? What were some challenges? Because still, as you and I and, and Jordan and a lot of folks know, the music industry is still pretty male dominant. There's inroads uh, females are making. But what challenges did you face as a female going into the uh, live sector? You know, just what you had to deal with. What were some of those challenges? All the challenges. All of them. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, they're, they're all there. Um, But I don't know. I view them as opportunities because, you know, it, you get to carve your own path. There's really no expectations. There's no, um, there's no restrictions. I I never felt like I had to act a certain way or do a certain thing or, you know, uh, fit into some stereotype. I was just kind of me and I uh, am a very, you know, honest and, and real person. And so I would, say what I thought. And that was very freeing in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So I, again, I viewed it as it was, it was definitely a challenge. Um, but also, like I said, also very rewarding and to be able to, you know, increase the, the female employee levels and to create, you know, some kind of, you know, what I hopefully like culture developments and, um, you know, our mission at first Avenue is radical inclusivity. And I hope that, You know, I like to think that that comes a little bit from, you know, braving that trail as a female rock club owner. And, you know, I think when I started, it was almost definitely majority male employees who are all, you know, decades older than me and and trying to step into that and be be respectful, but also have a voice and use it. So, yeah, all the challenges. One question I have too, Dana, is I know earlier you mentioned that you you said you met your wife in L.A., right? Mm Mm-hmm. What challenges would you say that you faced being a woman who was queer? Like my mom is gay. So, you know, I've I've experienced indirectly the challenges she's faced, not being in, you know, the music industry, but the industry she's in. But would you say you had any challenges being, you know, a lesbian woman in the music industry? Challenges or opportunities? Um, No. Um, Today's actually our 10-year wedding anniversary. I feel like I have to say that. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, so challenges being queer. I don't know. I love being queer. I find like the best sense of community. I'm so, for, for lack of a cheesy, like a less cheesy word, like I'm so proud. Yay. And I just think like, I just, <laughs> I just love it. It's, it's so much a part of who I am. And one of the, you know, just, just, I love it. So I always view it as a positive and I, I really like, you know, like I said, like build community around it and try to support, other you know queer artists and queer promoters and queer employees and and bring that to everything I do so I'm not sure if there were any challenges to be honest I'm sure like there were challenges that I just didn't uh didn't realize or uh purposely didn't recognize in order to just keep moving forward well other than you know being inclusive. I know that you said inclusivity was a main focus when you ended up back at First Avenue. I know that you've also focused on it retaining its independent status. Why was that important? So one of the things I love, not even one of the things, like what I love about First Avenue is that it's so uniquely tied to Minneapolis and to Prince and to the replacements and to the history and to the the events that could only happen in this in that room, in this city at that time. And I just I don't think an experience like that can be transported. I just, I just think it's uniquely tied to place. And so, you know, one of the things that you get by being independent is that you get the authority and the decision-making ability and you get to 
determine how your business is run and how your space looks and feels and operates based on what is best for your local community. And there's really, you know, there's no responsibility to shareholder value. There's no responsibility to uh, disconnected ownership or anything other than making sure that our fans and our artists and our employees are treated the very best and that this is the very best space for them. You know, I'm not as concerned about having the best club for Austin, Texas, or the best club for New York, or even the best club for uh, Northern Minnesota. You know, I want, I need to make sure that First Avenue is the very best club for the Twin Cities and for our artists that come through and that want to play here for the fans here. And I feel like that's only achievable with a local ownership and a really connected ownership group. So that's my soapbox. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. No problem. And you should be proud to take that soapbox and talk. And, and, and that's what I want to dig into now, too. On April 3rd, the, uh, uh, the iconic venue, First Avenue, celebrated its 50th anniversary. So we'd like to have you talk briefly about growing First Avenue from a single venue to an entire network of venues across Minnesota. Yeah, it's been a wild decade. April, man, it's so funny. Like April 3rd was supposed to be, you know, the, one of the greatest achievements and just a pure celebration. We spent, I think, 18, maybe 21 months planning this like oh. year, year of, you know, the April 3rd weekend was just like the kickoff. We had all of these just events, like events in the room, events throughout the city. You know, we really wanted to give Minneapolis, St. Paul, this feeling of like, you know, this is your club. This club is here because you have supported us for 50 years. And, you know, this just real like just gratitude and, you know, this year of celebration. Um, So you say that date and it's like part of me is just part of me is proud, but most of you is just like so heartbroken. Okay, uh, April 3rd, the name we do not speak of. No, I mean, no, it's, it's different, right? It's just different. I have to. Yeah, look at it. The challenge is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what was it like? It was it was right at the beginning of COVID, and we at First Ave were able to foreshadow that this was going to be a longer road than I think a lot of folks in the industry were thinking about at the time. You know, at the beginning, it was like, oh, is this? You know, do you think we'll be open on June fifteenth or July fifteenth? And we were kind of looking at what was going on with movie theaters in China and Europe. And we're like, I think this might be a really, a really long battle. Um, So uh, that's why we were really starting to sink into that reality around, you know, March 30th, April 1st. So then April 3rd runs around and we were able to do a digital, like a two hour digital event to celebrate the anniversary. And um, I'm just so proud of my team for that because it's so out of our wheelhouse. Um, But we were able to do that and get videos from some of our favorite artists and feel like, you know, a warm hug at the time. And uh, it was special nonetheless. Right. So, uh, yeah. And then again, um, pick up from there, uh, growing the network of First Avenue Productions. Oh, yeah. Sorry. sorry. No, no Uh, problem. (laughs) It's so much. (laughs) Sorry. You've accomplished so much. But six venues, is it? And counting, right? Yeah. So I think what happens when you take great, you know, pride and responsibility to your and accountability to your community. Um, I think folks see it and they notice it and they can tell with the attitude of the staff and how they're treated and, you know, just what the vibe is like in a, in a space. And so, you know, running a venue is really hard. It's not, you know, any, any perception from the movie, it's, you know, a million times harder and 
um, and, and more challenging and fraught. Um, and so it turns out that a lot of people don't want, they, they think they want to do it and then they, they figure out maybe this is not for them. And so what happened is we started, you know, really getting approached, you know, I think everybody likes this idea of like, Oh, a master plan and a really unstoppable growth. And, um, yeah. but that, that, that was not our story. Our story was, Oh wow, this is awesome. Like, look at how many people are happy and look at how many more people we're able to help and look at the artists that we're able to produce and, um, people like what we're doing and they're, they're gravitating to us. Um, and so how can we do that more? Like, how can we do that at every level and how can we service the artists? Not just, you know, at the 250 cap level and the 1550 cap level, but how do we help them in between? You know, how do we help them connect to the Minneapolis Twin Cities audience? How do we help give them the best possible rooms for them to play in? How do we help the, the customers have a better concert going experience? And so that's really what we considered when we when we looked at growth opportunities is, oh, can we add value here? Like, can we can we make this a better experience for artists? And, you know, if it was the answer was no, then, you know, we we passed on way more opportunities than we uh, than we said yes to. I mean, you mentioned some of that value, you know, adding value to artists and like why they want to be at First Avenue, an independent venue. Can you talk about what role do independent venues like First Ave play in helping launch careers of artists? And can you kind of talk about some of the notable acts that have gotten their start at First Avenue specifically? Oh, my other favorite soapbox. Thank you so much. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> this is terrible. Um, so what role do independent venues play? We are the launch pads of the greatest talent of the world before anyone's ever heard of them. You know, like I said, like running a, an independent venue is just so grueling. It's not a job. It's a lifestyle. And it's what you, every independent venue owner and staff um, has really committed their life to in decades too so you you live it and you breathe it and that you know like I kind of like I was talking about with Lizzo like that is that is what you live for you know seeing that artist for the first time and being like oh god like this is it and I can help you and I want to do what I can to to help that you know and we know that at some point that artists will you know if we do our job right they'll leave us right like they'll go to arena tours or they'll do europe or amphitheater you know, whatever it might be but we also know that they might not have gotten there without our help and without our support and you know putting on those shows for 30 people and then oh, the next show is for 40 people and you know some other promoters if you're only focused on a bottom line might say okay well on to the next act but we're like no we see something so we'll do it for 50 people next time and we'll keep we'll keep going you know we're also like just incredibly committed to the local scene because it's cold here in Minnesota. Like we, we are very fortunate that we have a great touring artist that come through here, but we also rely on those regular nights and those local artists and um, helping them develop their fan base and get radio play and, and break out of the market too, maybe. Um, and so, you know, what role do we play? Like I said, just that believing in them, giving them the stage, you know, using our marketing capabilities and helping fans find out about the shows and making a good customer experience in the venue so that a fan is like, oh, even if I'm you know, kind of maybe on the fence, like I haven't heard of this artist, but my friend says I should go. I know that I can get my favorite beer and I know I'm going to be treated well and I know the sight lines are going to be good. And so, you know, I'll take a chance on this 10 or 15 or 20 bucks and I'll, I'll go to the show. During the pandemic, you stayed busy, um, Dana. So talk a little bit about too, uh, the National Independent Venue Association, what you're doing 
to uh, help fund and provide funds and aid for independent concert venues, clubs, and theaters. I know, like a lot of folks, we're missing that live experience that you just explained. Thank, thank you for recognizing um, how busy it is. You'll, you'd never guess how many people are like, oh, you don't have any shows. You must have so much free time. Are you just working out all the time? I'm like, well, I'm actually sitting in front of Zoom for 12 hours a day and trying to, you know, homeschool my kids and, you know, cook. But yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, so, yeah, so Neva launched out of the independent venue week town halls that are led by Reverend Moose and, and the Marauder group. And they were really the first people to recognize when things started shutting down. I think it was like March, what, 8th, 9th, 10th, with starting with South by, yeah. and then, you know, the whole dominoes, um, that, Hey, we should, independent promoters should probably start talking to each other and figuring out, you know, cause so much of what we do as independence is local, locally based. And, um, so, we all started just being like, hey, are you guys shutting down? Are you having restrictions? Like what's, you know, just sharing information really. Um, uh, and then I think the first, the first one was a call. It was like before even anyone, everyone had Zoom downloaded. Um, so then out of that, like kind of the end of the, the town halls, there was kind of a general sentiment that, hey, we should have a group. Like we should make this like a formal thing. And so a few of us, you know, I think uh, there was an email that went out that said, hey, anyone interested in this potential group, let us know. So it was all kind of like self-selecting. And, um, you know, we all got together and talked about what this group could be. What should it be, a C3 or a C6 or whatever? And I was really passionate about um, federal support because I really, you know, again, look, taking it from like the long term shutdown that we were foreshadowing you know, the only way to get through that is is with federal support. And then seeing what the government was able to do with the CARES Act, I mean, that blew my mind. I mean, I, I didn't even, you know, realize the level of support the government could provide. Um, and so, you know, it, with the Paycheck Protection Program, like, was great for three months. But I'm like, wait, if we're going to be closed for a year, at that point, it was a year. Now it's going to be like 18 months or whatever. Um, but like, how are we going to make it through this? And if we as First Avenue and you know, with, with resources and multiple rooms and we own our venues. So we're in, you know, better shape if we're thinking this way, like what are other people thinking? Um, and so it really, you know, we really felt strongly like this was the time for the industry to band together and for the bigger guys to watch out for the little guys and to all try to work together, um, for really the first time ever to protect our whole industry. And so, yeah, so Neva, as a, you know, a, a smallish board started organizing and working together. And uh, I think we have more board meetings than probably any other association. You know, we talk probably six hours a day or something, you know, something like that, just about how to best structure this, how to best help independent venues, like what, what should we be doing? What more should we be doing? Um, and then we, yeah, we went from there. And so, yeah, we have about 3,000 members now which is pretty i think i think it when we started we're like, wow, we can get to 500 members we'll be in really good shape and then it just kind of exploded wow and in that 3000 you've got 600 artists right under under the save our right. stages initiative who were some of those artists yeah so we um we started it, it's amazing you know we put out the, our letter to congress and we just started getting a lot of incoming calls like what can we do to help you know because really, when you broke down just the just the imperiled situation we were in, I think it was pretty clear for people to see that this was needed. 
Um, and so we were on the phone with a, an artist manager and they were like, well, what if we write a letter? What if we write a, a letter to Congress for you? I'm like, oh, that sounds awesome. Right? Like, can you have other artists try to sign it too? And they're like, yeah, sure. Let me let us check. And so it just kind of like spiraled from there. And so our artist relations committee, uh, led by Patrick Wilson, who is unbelievable, um, really just started the outreach. And anyone who like asked what they could do to help, we're like, well, we have this letter. And so eventually we yeah, were at 600 artists with, I mean, I don't even know if I can name every, all, almost every everyone really, like so many recognizable names and unbelievable, unbelievable talent. And we kept, we kept adding people until finally we were like, we have to get this out. We have to just like close it and send it. And um, yeah, so it went to Congress and really, I think for, again, the first time that I can remember really seeing the value of independent venues as a, as a, a unit. And that was really, I trying not to cry, but it was really meaningful, you know, because like I said, it's not just a job, it's, it's a lifestyle and you commit decades upon decades and lots of gray hairs and sleepless nights and, you know, emergencies, you know, throughout, throughout this to, to operate these venues and to keep them going through everything. Um, and so just even the recognition and the appreciation was just, just so meaningful. You said that it went to Congress. What was the the reaction or like what has been the result of that? It's been really, um, really positive. You know, we weren't sure at the beginning, like, oh, are people going to, yeah, like, is Congress going to care about concerts? Because like, you know, it might be a little niche, whereas, you know, restaurants, like everyone goes to eat at a restaurant. But, you know, who like, we were like, oh, I guess the, the congressional staffers, like, they'll probably care because they probably go to concerts. But you know, we really positioned ourselves as we're music, yes, but we're also, we're small businesses. And, you know, we're just as distressed as other small businesses, except we're entirely closed. We have no revenue. Um, and so we, you know, really leaned hard on the economic value we bring to our communities. You know, people don't just buy a concert ticket. They make a whole night of it. They make whole trips of it. You know, we support the artists, but we also support employees. And a lot of our employees are students and they're working parents and they're the jobs that like really allow them to put food on the table and, and pursue their dreams. Um, and so we were able to form, you know, really good working relationships with like our local like hotels and the restaurants and the business associations and, you know, went in kind of not as an arts bill, but as a small business bill going off of that, the response was great. And I feel like our message has really resonated. But how important, Dana, is it to keep this going once, you know, we get past the pandemic? Oh, it's not going away. Oh, no, 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 no. This is this is here. And it's um, the potential, I feel like, hasn't even been close to explored yet. You know, um, it's at the very, very earliest stages of what we can do to support the ecosystem of independent venues and promoters and our employees and our artists and our local communities. You know, we always said our goal is to help people, you know, first we're gonna help them survive, then we're gonna help them thrive, and we're gonna give them tools and resources they need to best operate their businesses and like, you know, serve those, like that I said that, that we need to serve. and. You know, if, if somebody wants to sell and if it's the best for their families and their business and their community, absolutely could not, you know, support that more. But if, if people don't want to sell, we want to help them remain independent and um, just operate the best they possibly can be. Independent and small businesses, you know, that is the lifeblood of, of the economy. And we really do, as you just said, have to keep that going. 
So looking back um, beyond all of your accomplishments and your successful career to date, who were some of the women in the industry that you consider mentors and what did they do to support you on your path? That is such a good question. I feel like something that I've learned through like some fellowship programs and talking to women in other industries is the incredible mentorship programs that exist. I don't feel like that, at least it didn't exist for me when I started. You know, my mentor without a doubt, 100% with my dad. Yeah. That's who I learned from. And again, I feel so incredibly fortunate because I got, you know, I think one of the most, the valuable things about that mentor relationship is you get to ask the stupid questions that you would never ask to a normal boss because you wouldn't want to expose weakness exactly. or, you know, try to mm-hmm. let them know that you don't know something or whatever. Um, you know, I got to ask my dad all that because I'm like, well, it's my dad. I'm, who else would I ask these stupid questions Aww. to? Um, and so we got to have that like, just really open, honest relationship. Um, but I don't think, you know, that's, I think, one thing that is a really interesting area that for Neva to explore or if there's other programs, you know, just that kind of mentorship relationship, especially in helping break down the barriers for young women, diverse, you know, I, one of like the main, I think, issues and goals that I can't wait to jump into and support after the lobbying business is done. Um, and me and, uh, but is just the, the opening up as a more inclusive, equitable industry. I just think it's, um, imperative. It's long overdue. Um, so, you know, a mentorship opportunity is, is one of those like just fundamental, like helpful tools. So people should be on the lookout for some kind of mentorship program coming soon from Neva. Is that, is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes. Okay. Not too, not too soon. Not too I'd like soon. to get a full night of sleep. <laughs> right, but right. give me until like January 7th. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we always kind of like to end the podcast on an advice, like a piece of advice. So this is kind of a two-part question. I would love to know, is there any advice that you would have given your younger self back in the day? Whether it was like, you know, before when you jumped into TV and film, and even when you came back to Minneapolis and started back in the live industry, live music industry, what would be some advice you would have given your younger self? I can't think of any piece of advice I wouldn't give myself. Oh my God, I made (laughs) so many mistakes. All of them. All of of the mistakes. I've I've made them all. Um, But the main one is, you know, believe, believe in yourself. Don't doubt. Don't say sorry. Like, you're right. Don't let anyone take that power away from you. Um, you have you have that and and no one can give it to you. And if you don't take it and if you don't believe in yourself, no one else will either. You know, I think of all the times that I was like, oh, is this right? Is this not? I don't know. And that that was all uh, I wouldn't say an error, a learn, an opportunity. It was a challenge and an opportunity. Um, but I am so in awe of this younger generation of like the Gen Z and just the incredible amount They're of They're so insurance. smart. And it's crazy. They are, they are not taking anything. And what they like, the systemic injustice, the, the intolerance for it is just like mind boggling. And like, I can't wait to see what they can do. Over the last couple of years, Dana, have you noticed, are there more women wanting to get, uh, coming to you, wanting to get into the live end of the uh, industry? Oh, yeah. Not only do they, it's like, are they wanting to, like, they, they're acting like, how is the right way to put this? It's like, it's not even recognized that there's any reason why they shouldn't, right? There's like no insecurity into like, well, why wouldn't this job be for me? And the way I think sometimes people of my generation definitely were kind of like 
we asked, right? This younger generation is like telling. And I just think it's the coolest thing ever. (laughs) Well, what advice do you have for women who would one day love to run their own venue? Make all the mistakes. Make them all. Better to make them and learn than to be timid and to uh, be shy and to, um, you know, hold yourself back. That's some great advice. I'm going to take that. Well, thank you so much, Dana. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Very illuminating. I've enjoyed this. Oh, I hope so. Okay, I'm going to go try to get this bill passed. Yes. yes. Keep us updated. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Keep going. Thank All you, right. guys. Bye. Thank thanks, you. Dana. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.